figure in the information age, but facts are in short supply. Reject the noise, ask bold questions, and pursue the truth with FBI whistleblowers and founding suspendables, Garrett O'Boyle and Steve Friend. This is the American Radicals Podcast. It is the American Radicals Podcast. It's a new week, folks. Today is Tuesday, February 27th. It's noon Eastern, maybe a couple minutes late. We are off and rolling, though, on Rumble, the American Radicals Podcast. You can find us every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday at noontime. It's rumble.com slash amradpod. If you are here with us in the chat, thank you very much for your time today. We have a great guest, and Garrett and I have been waiting on this one. We've been excited to bring it to you. Uh, So if you're with us today in the chat, you are in for a treat. While you're there, make sure that you give us a follow on the show, like, and subscribe if your heart moves you to do that. If you are listening to the podcast subsequently on iTunes or Spotify, one of those forums, you can subscribe so that you will get automatic updates whenever we drop a new episode, which is typically three days a week. We had a little bit of a hiccup last week, the flu household. A flu hit the friend household pretty bad, so we only had two, but we are back in regular working order, and we want to get at it right away today. So let's bring on Garrett at G-O-B Actual, and uh, we can and we can start the proceedings here today, my friend. Garrett, uh, you had, before we start, I wanted to make sure that we do announce a very exciting update to your social media presence. Go ahead and drop that. Yeah, if you're uh, on Twitter... Feel free to give me a follow. I have unrestricted my account there in large part. Thanks to a shout out from Dan Bongino. He uh, threw me, Steve and Kyle on a list. And yesterday when I pulled up Twitter, I was like, why are so many people trying to follow me all of a sudden? And so I was like, you know what? I think it's time. And uh, I unleashed. And you know what? I I basically tweet shots at the FBI and Bible verses. So if uh, the FBI has a problem with that, I mean, so be it. <laughs> that should be sorted out in the vetting, I would think. Uh, but, you know, you and I slipped through the cracks. Uh, well, but there's somebody else who's been taking shots at the FBI and had, has been doing so in spades longer than you and I uh, from the outside. And we are excited to have him on today. And that is Mr. Trevor Aronson, who's going to be the guest today for the American Radicals podcast. Trevor, man, we have been looking forward to having you come on for a long time. Uh, we we profiled uh, one of your stories a few weeks back, and I know Garrett and I are both fans of your work that you've done long term. Uh, uh, but that's the one particular that we talked about. We introduced to the audience was the catfish by cops. Um, but man, really, really honored to get a chance to to talk to you today. Uh, and thanks for joining us on the American Radicals podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad we could finally make this happen. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's it is great to have you on. It's like Steve said, we've we've been following your work. We've we've talked about you before. We've mentioned your TED talk. We always tell people go watch it. Um, and I'm assuming some of our audience, at least some of our audience, probably comes from a little bit of a different political landscape uh, than you do. So for us, that's an additional reason why we're glad to have you because there are a lot of things that uh, paths from the left and right should cross. And I think this type of weaponization by the government and government overreach uh, that you follow with the FBI and other agencies and kind of what Steve and I were subjected to uh, is one of those one of those streams that everybody from all walks of life should be able to get behind and understand that in the alleged land of the free, an insidious government like we're seeing is has no place. So thanks for continuing to shine a light on it and thanks for joining us today. Sure, yeah, thanks for having me. 
could you, Trevor, could you just introduce yourself to the audience, just uh, your background? I know, you know, you, you've worked for The Intercept for some time. You've, you've, you've got a history as an author. Uh, can you just uh, give us uh, the, the wave tops here so that folks who aren't familiar with your work uh, can, can get acquainted? Yeah. So, so my, my background is in a traditional or is in traditional investigative reporting. And I started writing uh, and reporting on the FBI around 2008, 2009. <clears throat> and, you know, it was one of those things that I didn't expect to, you know, look back 15 years later and realize that I'm still writing about the FBI. It just kind of, kind of happened in, a, in an organic way that, you know, we can talk about if you're interested. Uh, but my focus has, you know, in, in the last decade or so has been on the FBI's counterterrorism program and really the intersection uh, between national security and, and civil liberties and, and where that where that tension occurs. Um, and so, you know, as a quick background, I, I wrote a book that came out in 2013 called The Terror Factory. Um, it was the basis of my TED talk in, I believe, 2015. And then since I think 2015 as well, I've been a contributing writer at The Intercept and have largely focused, you know, I've written about a number of things, but among them, you know, mostly topics about the FBI and federal law enforcement. And, you know, a good, you know, just to emphasize, like a lot of my uh, reporting, unlike I think a lot of FBI reporters or people who cover government, like I, I really look at the agency and try to report on it from the bottom up as opposed to the top down. Um, I think when you hear a lot of people talk about the FBI, they're talking about sources within the executive offices. And, you know, that's not really where I'm reporting. Where I, where I, where I want to be is kind of reporting on, um, you know, street level cases that are kind of emblematic of the FBI's larger behavior and at times abuses. Yeah, I, I think that is another reason that it's all the more important for people to follow along because Steve and I have heard it countless times since the FBI canceled us since we testified. Oh, it's just it's just at the headquarters level, right? It's just the SES -er level, right? And it's like, no, it's not. It's insidious throughout the whole agency. And that is probably the bigger problem. Some SES -er in an office somewhere who hasn't worked a case in 15 years you should expect them to be off the rails, but an agent like a, uh, a boot level agent, you know, ground level agent uh, who is working cases, who allegedly has some constitutional law training, they should understand people's civil rights. And more and more, it seems like they don't. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously there's a long history of that within the Bureau. And I, I think we've, we've seen uh, a real backslide in the post 9-11 era to some of the abuses that you saw of a much earlier incarnation of the Bureau, right? Like <clears throat> some of the, the the abuses that you can point to from Hoover's era are, you know, happening today or happening today in, in order of magnitude larger because of the increase in technology. Um, and I think a lot of that has been, you know, in the 9-11 era, um, we've kind of turned the, um, you know, we've turned the war on terror inward in many ways, right? Like 20 years later, and so a lot of these like abusive practices that Americans were okay with when they were under fear of like a next attack and like do whatever you need to do to, you know, catch the terrorists. Um, you know, a lot of those powers have, have continued. And as the war on terror has waned, there are fewer, you know, Islamist extremists on the FBI's radar, and they are now turning uh, those powers in directions that I think are, are kind of more, you know, Americans are now kind of, you know, feeling or hearing about in different ways. It's the, the cautionary tale. I mean, Garrett and I and, and all the other uh, people who have come forward with our concerns, we've all, I, I think it's amazing, uh, uniquely have cited the trip that we all took to the Holocaust Memorial 
uh, as new onboarding employees of the FBI and and the purpose there of learning the lesson that you have to throw the flag because just following orders is never a sufficient answer. And I'm always struck by the memory of seeing that Martin Niemöller poem and knowing that first they came for the socialists and I was not a socialist, so I said nothing. And, and it proceeds on and on. And eventually there's no one left to speak for you when they come for you. And I think that a lot of Americans are coming around to that idea that now there's no one else left, and and the FBI is has a insatiable appetite to hit its uh, domestic terrorist numbers for budgetary purposes, for political reasons, and there's it's across the spectrum, um, and and a lot of people are being caught up in the dragnet. Um, you, Trevor, you mentioned uh, that the the original originally getting into this in the uh, in the late uh, aughts. Uh, was there a personal experience that you had that what really kind of jumped out to you that got you galvanized to, to for this to be something that's really become your career that you wanted to cover and and write a book on and, and really uh focus down on as a journalist yeah so i i should admit that you know, there was never any like deliberate like i'm gonna report on the fbi uh plan I, it happened much slower and more more organically um i was a journalist a reporter in south florida um in the in the 2000s in the aughts and you know, this was not that far from the cocaine cowboy days of Miami. And so there was still like a huge federal law enforcement presence in South Florida. And I was I was covering cops and, and federal law enforcement. And what I was seeing over and over again in the cases I was looking at, whether they were FBI or DEA or local cop cases, um, was the, the use and misuse of informants in, in case after case. And, and that's really what um, inspired my interest in, in informants. And then you know, then I started looking into the FBI and, and this was like late 2000. So it was a couple of years after George W. Bush's directive to increase, you know, confidential human sources within the Bureau. And so there was this mad dash to recruit informants, particularly from within Muslim communities. And what I began reporting on was kind of the, the levers of, um, you know, the leverage that the FBI would use against Muslims, right? So traditionally, as you guys know, in a criminal enterprise, the FBI would look at using you know lower level crimes as leverage to get someone to flip as an informant and in the post 9 11 era when they were looking to recruit muslims uh from within local muslim communities you know they weren't finding guys stealing cars right so they had to find other leverage points and so immigration became the one that was most convenient for them and so i started writing about um how they were leveraging immigration charges against people who to recruit as informants and then right around then um, the Liberty City 7 case was announced. And I remember going to the press conference in downtown Miami and just thinking like, this is just horseshit, right? Like these guys never were in contact with the FBI. It was an F or it was never in contact with Al Qaeda. It was an FBI informant who financed everything and came up with the idea. And I, I wrote like a very critical article of it at the time. And I remember just being struck by how um, the most of the coverage at the time, including CNN and the AP and the local Miami Herald, you know, we're, 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 we're deferential to the government's narrative, right? And made it seem like these guys really were this Al-Qaeda sleeper cell in Liberty City of all places, which was the most ridiculous part of it. If, you, if you're familiar with Miami, like you would know, like no Al-Qaeda cell is hi hiding out in Liberty City, right? And, uh, and so that, that started this interest in me in these cases. And it took a few years, but then I was tracking as these new sting cases developed and I started putting together this spreadsheet and then tracking like which cases involve stings of those stings which involved informants and you know started to kind of see this very clear pattern that the FBI was you know basically setting these people up in entrapment operations targeting people who never had any capacity for real terrorism and so that that 
you know, that for me was the start. And, and that's the basis of the Terror Factory, my book, which is how how this kind of system came to be in the post 9-11 era and the way that it has abused uh, Muslims, but then also exaggerated the threat of Islamist terrorism from within the United States. You know, I think it's important to point out, like, you know, when Trump ran for election the first time and, you know, he called for, you know, a shutdown of immigration from Muslim countries so we can figure out what the hell is going on, right? He was really tapping into this narrative that had been exaggerated by the Justice Department over a decade, right, through these sting operations. I mean, that isn't to suggest that Islamist terrorism isn't real. It, it certainly is. But the the levels of case, the, 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 the enormous amount of cases that the government was bringing um, really kind of exaggerated that effect. And so, you know, since then, you know, I wrote the book expecting to move on to other um, subject areas. And then, like, you know, agents and people, you know, in litigation with the FBI started coming forward. And it just, it kind of became this cycle where I found myself getting deeper and deeper within uh, the FBI and trying to report on what its activities were. Yeah, well, we're glad you are and continue to do it over all these years now. And, you know, it's as you were talking there, it, it made me think of a couple things. You're probably familiar with this case. It, it went all the way to the Supreme Court, Tanzan versus Tanvir. It's exactly what you were talking about, where FBI agents are putting is, Islamic or Muslim immigrants, you know, they're putting their feet over the coals saying, hey, why don't you become a source for us? And in this case, there was three of them who said no, and then the FBI ends up putting them on a watch list and not allowing them to fly, and then they're losing jobs and not being able to see family or get back to the United States. And you know, 15 years later, by the time it hits the Supreme Court, the damage is done. Like the the process is the punishment is kind of what we say about our our whistleblowing activities and what's happened since. But it, it, in a lot of ways, it's even worse for for normal citizens or immigrants who came to hopefully start a better life. And then the other thing I was thinking about was around, well, after nine, so let's see, 2006, I enlisted in the army and I bought this narrative, this narrative that you're talking about, like, oh, Islamic extremism, does it exist? Yeah, I think we can all agree on it on a global scale there. It does for sure. Uh, but you start seeing all these news articles, FBI foils terror plot and all this stuff. And then, you know, fast forward now, like I even remember writing some papers in college uh, before I even was seriously contemplating becoming an FBI agent, I was always interested in this stuff. Well, when I go and look back at some of those cases I wrote about, it's like, wait a second. Guaranteed there is a CHS here. Guaranteed there was an undercover here. And the FBI, you know, used, used those mechanisms to quote unquote foil the plot. And then fast forward, like you mentioned, it's all being turned in, in internally now, domestically even more like uh, Steve had some experience working the Gretchen Whitmer case. And that's a, a great example of the same type of playbook being used. And then uh, Steve and I, last night, we were tweeting back and forth a little bit about in 2021 alone, the FBI abused FISA 702 3.4 million times. So that's a fourth amendment violation, 3.4 million times, but we're supposed to believe they're the good guys. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, FISA just came back up for renewal. And, you know, it's kind of scary to the degree to which um, that keeps getting renewed and renewed. And I, I think in part, a lot of Americans don't realize like how abusive Section 02 can be. And this is one of the areas I've tried to write about and reveal as much as possible, even though it's it's a, it's limited in what we can get access to. But as, as you as you guys probably know, there's a process within the Bureau as well as other federal agencies called parallel construction. And so if they use uh, 702 bulk surveillance to, you know, go back in time and look at your email and then realize that your 
up to up to something, you know, they won't disclose that to the court as far as the predication of the case, because then, the, you know, it's fruit of the, po you know, fruit of the poisonous tree. Um, and so what they'll do is they'll create like another way to start the case or at least tell the courts that. Right. And so we see the DEA do this with, you know, drugs moving, um, you know, across the border. They will get it through 702. And then the car that's ultimately, you know, pulled over, it's the poli local police will say like, oh, well, there's an out like, you know, th there's there's now taillight. And that's why we pulled it over and we found the drugs. And, you know, we've seen in terrorism cases in particular, you know, I, I, we documented through some of the Snowden files that some of the cases that the FBI was saying were predicated um, on informant information or other um, other information really was predicated on 702 and bulk surveillance. They just didn't disclose it to the court. And I, and I think, you know, what we don't know is like how often this happens, right? Who's being targeted? And, you know, I, and it's really concerning for me to see that um, Americans don't have kind of the level of concern about the 702 authorities that, that the government has. I think that they, your, your eyes kind of gloss over as soon as you hear number 702 and there's this, well, it's counterintelligence and, and even our elected officials have no actual understanding of what is involved, which is how you get someone like a John Cornyn saying, you know, well, the F in FISA stands for foreign, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess, I guess Sesame Street works for some of us. We can get elected <laughs> to Congress. Um, when you, uh, when you cover down on these stories as they emerge, I mean, do, is your process that you just kind of like look for a press release from the FBI saying like, hey, we have a terrorism arrest or or are you now to the point where people are sort of coming to you and saying like, I think I might fit the central casting, the, the playbook here that's being played on me? I mean, it's both. You know, I, I keep track of, you know, cases that are announced and I, I keep, you know, a, a colleague of mine at The Intercept, Margo Williams, and I have a database called Trial and Terror um, that is a database of all like... Um, international terrorism cases since 9-11 and you can filter it on like when 702 was used and you know it's a very niche audience but for people who are looking at terrorism cases you know it's kind of a valuable resource and then of course i keep you know you know internally spreadsheets to track cases so fbi announcements can be useful kind of as an aggregate um but it's they're, they're not a primary source i mean for me you know having worked in this area for so long i mean obviously there are people you know your former colleagues at the fbi like you know, I, I always emphasize to people that, um, you know, a lot of my reporting is really critical of the FBI, that, but that doesn't mean there aren't FBI agents or employees who are sympathetic and agreeing with some of the reporting that I'm doing and are quite helpful in, you know, providing me with information, even if it's on background, even if it's just like, hey, this is how the bureaucracy works. So I can kind of understand better, you know, what's going on internally. Um, the challenge for the, the challenge with reporting on the FBI um, as with any agency like this is, is, you know, I've had a number of people come to me and talk to me about, you know, what they view as FBI harassment or, you know, surveillance. And, and the challenge is that like it, proving that can be very difficult. And, and I tend to have a very, um, you know, high standard or high burden of proof for my story. So, you know, any kind of FBI surveillance or FBI case, I really, you know, substantiate through FBI records themselves. Um, and so, so a big part of my work is kind of leveraging sources, like getting people I, I know who trust me to provide me with some insight into what's happening within the agency. The other part of it is, you know, you would be surprised that the number of, you know, secrets that are hiding in plain sight just by like diving through court records, you know, sometimes FBI agents aren't the savviest in, um, you know, writing their documents in a way that reveals things that they don't mean to or that they accidentally do. And then the third part of it is that I, I rely increasingly on people leaking me information. 
whether that's you know sources within the government or attorneys that are involved in cases with the FBI. Um, and, and, the, and the reason for that is quite simple, which is that the FOIA system is largely broken yeah. um, and intentionally. So it's very difficult for reporters to just go to the FBI and you know request documents. It takes years. It's very expensive, often requires litigation. And so increasingly, um, you know, I am relying on people to provide me with information um, that the government doesn't want out. And, you know, I think it's important to note as well that that has become increasingly difficult for journalists like me uh, because of the government's use of the Espionage Act to go after sources. And this is something that cuts across parties, right? Like under Obama, under Trump, under Biden, we've seen the continued use of espionage to go after um, sources who are providing information. And so, you know, I think the way part of the reason I've stuck with this for so long is I think it's like really important work. I think the FBI is one of the, you know, obviously one of the most secretive agencies in the country and requires kind of like dogged observation. Um, but then the other part of it is like, it just took me so this long to kind of get to the point where I'm, you know, have sources who can provide this information. And, you know, I feel like an obligation to try to, you know, try to get as many stories out as I can. Well, I want to get into one of the big stories too, and 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 make sure that we are not only talking about your uh, your book, but the 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 podcast that you, that you have uh, out there now, the Alphabet Boys. Um, but if you will uh, indulge us for one second, we do want to make sure we thank the American Radicals podcast sponsor today, uh, guys. Make sure that you are going to TrueEarth.co. You can uh, use the American Radicals podcast. Promo code, which is AMRAD24. You can go there. Uh, it, I know in Florida, Wisconsin, I can't speak for Garrett, uh, but in Florida, it is definitely spring season here. Uh, you can go there and take advantage of the uh, the different fertilizers that they have for your home garden. Uh, and you can also take advantage of the, the supplements that they have there. Uh, I was laid up last week, was really sick, not the fault of anything from True Earth. Uh, I am back on my regimen. I'm making sure that I'm hitting up the black turmeric, which has some really great qualities that are anti-inflammatory. So as I'm getting back into the swing of things and the regular exercise regimen, I am not going to return to a state of soreness. So go to trueearth.co and uh, make sure that you use AMRAD24 as your promo code, and you will get a 10% discount store-wide on all products that they have there. Let's get back, though, uh, to Trevor. And, and for those just joining us, we are the American Radicals podcast on Rumble, rumble.com slash AMRADpod. Our guest today is a journalist for The Intercept. He is also an author of a book called The Terror Factory, and he's a podcast host himself. The podcast is called alphabet boys and that is mr trevor aronson uh trevor I, we uh garrett and i garrett actually beat me to the punch he listened to the podcast uh and said that it was definitely uh, worth my time i wanted to, to check it out i checked it out uh really appreciate the work that you did on this case it um can you just kind of give like a uh, a cliff notes version of of what the season one uh sort of encompasses and we can get into some of the particulars i think that that uh, both garrett and i have uh have some unique experiences and perspectives that might be actually add some color to things that you might not even know about on that case sure yeah so so um you know i remember when the racial justice protest started in in 2020 i i remember my thesis at the time was this would you know obviously be a target of fbi investigation that they would use informants and the, the question for me was to to what degree they would and to you know, what extent the informant would try to instigate um, violence, instigate action in the way that we'd seen with, you know, counterterrorism stings where the FBI targets a young Muslim, offers him a bomb and then arrests him and foils the plot. 
And so, in, you know, initially I, I struggled to find a, a specific case. I'm, you know, agents had told me that this was happening. They didn't have a lot of specific information. And then um, I ended up getting leaked to me files that were um, related to an investigation in Denver, Colorado, um, involving uh, an informant named Mickey Windecker, who, you know, as you guys know, like a lot of FBI informants, you know, had a very colorful past, including, you know, violent felonies and a history of deception. And, you know, was obviously just not a very trustworthy guy. And the FBI hired him and, um, and had him, inserted him into the Denver racial justice movement. And he did a couple of things that were quite insidious. One is that he rose up the ranks to become a leader of the movement, in part by accusing others of being informants, the real leaders of the movement, a practice in a snitch jacketing. And then when he was um, in a leadership position, he started encouraging um, some of the black activists to get involved in a plot to assassinate the state's attorney general at the time. Um, you know, and so it's worth mentioning too, like this is this is all happening around the time of the, you know, the the Whitmer plot in Michigan. You know, there there seemed to be a concerted effort by the FBI to encourage political violence at a time when the government was publicly quite concerned about political violence. And and so that that's what happened in Denver. Unlike the Michigan case, like they weren't ultimately able to get anyone to participate in an assassination plot, but they ended up, uh, you know, getting one man to drive out to the house and surveil it, and then he backed out. Um, but like we see in a lot of cases, this was a case that involved, you know, at least one informant. We've heard rumors of more than one, and at least one undercover agent. And you know, they ultimately investigated all of these activists um, as a domestic terrorism investigation, and the predicate really didn't exist. You know, as, as you guys know, the FBI has this, this process known as an assessment that is a post 9-11 process that basically lets them open an investigation for like no reason at all, really, right? Like, you know, even First Amendment protected activity like is enough to kind of, you know, basis of this, um, this assessment. And well, so they do say they have a caveat, right? We don't investigate favorite. First Amendment protected yeah. activity. <laughs> Christopher they Ray do. I mean, that, that. that's true. Except in this particular case, they did acknowledge that um, First Amendment protected activity. So, so I should fa fast forward after after Alphabet Boys came out, the ACLU um, filed a lawsuit uh, based on some of my reporting. And then a, a man who is the subject of the FBI's investigation um, ultimately pleaded guilty to giving a gun to a felon. The FBI informant had kind of coerced him or pressured him. A thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. Gun, yeah. Right? The, the standard right. like fallback charge, right? Like you yep. can't get That's, him on a conspiracy charge. Let's mm -hmm. try to get a gun. You got to get something. Here. Right. Gotta yeah. You something. see this all the time, right? Yeah. And for so, sure. So in, what's interesting. But it's not entrapment somehow. <laughs> yeah. It's and, just and, so ridiculous. And, and so in this particular case, like others, you know, the FBI informant gave him the gun. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Excuse me. Gave him the money, walked with him into the Bass Pro where he bought the gun using the FBI money and then gets the gun, gives the gun to the FBI informant who then gives it to the FBI, right? Like there's no real crime. It was all just right. this like circular yeah. um, thing that the FBI had going, but is a, is, is a crime enough for federal court? And and so you see this as a fallback charge. So after after our show came out, Zeb Hall, the, the, the defendant in that case, uh, filed a motion to vacate his plea based on entrapment information that had come out in, in Alphabet Boys. And what's interesting is the government's response um, admitted in, or they admitted in their response to his motion that the entire investigation was based on First Amendment protected activities, was based on speech. But they said that was okay because it was speech of a violent nature, and you know that was the justification, right? So it, again, it does show that, like you know, publicly what the FBI says is like we have these assessments, but we don't 
investigate speech. We don't investigate ideology. And in truth, you know, you can look at this and see that this is an example where they were investigating, you know, speech, right? Granted, some of the things that these guys were saying at protests, like, you know, we need to burn the city down, you know, I mean, that's concerning, you know, but is it, it's not enough, you know, it shouldn't be enough to, to necessarily launch an investigation of the nature that they did. And, and so that, sure. that's what happened in that particular case. And, you know, I, I think what was interesting about it for me uh, was that in many ways, the abuses that you saw in that particular case with the FBI's targeting of, you know, what had been the largest, you know, black civil rights movement since, you know, the civil rights era, um, you know, was being targeted in a way that was very reminiscent of the tactics that were used during COINTELPRO. Yeah, it's, uh, so the, the, this is one thing that actually really frustrates me about cases like this is you would think an FBI agent would have the requisite training and knowledge to determine, okay, is this a true threat? So for people listening who may not understand first amendment protections, there are, there are certain types of speech that aren't protected or have limited protections. And one of those would be a true threat. Like, okay, they're marching in the street saying we need to burn the city down or whatever. Is that an actual true threat or is it just part of their march? But the FBI is going to take it, seize on it. And like you mentioned in court, then say, well, it was, it was language of a violent nature. Okay. I mean, you could find just about anybody who's going to have some type of language of a violent nature throughout their life. Does that mean you open a domestic terrorism case on it? No, but in the FBI's circumstances, it's, it's to perpetuate their stats. It's to perpetuate cases because if I open up a new case, my boss is happy because, oh, that's another case I can talk about once a month at the briefing. And then I can say, oh, look at all the domestic terrorism cases we have open. And it's like, it's just like, a, it's like a dog chasing its tail a lot of the time. And then if you do get one of your subjects, like in this instance, Zeb Hall to buy the gun. Well, great. Now you got a, now you got a quote unquote real case because now we can charge them with something. And uh, just, it's just so, so frustrating where like in my limited time, because I worked on a JTTF, it would be like, first things first, when you get a, you know, an assessment opened, it'd be like, okay, let's find out if this thing is for real. And then there are other agents who, which for me, it would be like, let me go knock, knock and talk. I'll go knock and talk on the door of the alleged threat that came in. And it's like, okay, let's determine if this is for real. Where in this case, they get a CHS, they get an undercover. And Zeb Hall even says in your podcast, well, I was afraid of Mickey. And it's like, well, of course, but this is another aspect the government refuses to acknowledge, just the mental psyche of humans. And it's like, there's a lot more going on here than just black and white, letter of the law, he broke the law. Well, he's afraid of Mickey because of the history and past of Mickey rising through the movement and himself often speaking in inflammatory language and then, or threatening people. You know, I think of his, his uh, recording that he made when he was, initially outed as a snitch and then he does that that video saying i'm I, you know i'm not an effing snitch you know and it's like well you are but you are dude you you actually are that but but no he can do all those things where you probably know this in the fbi you can get what's called um otherwise illegal activity authorization for your chs and now they can break the law and they're not going to ever be held accountable for it but but your subject he's going to be held accountable Oh man, it's just so, it's so frustrating, but at the same time, like, I'm glad, you know, and I, you know, not asking, I don't know where you got the information, but I'm glad someone was willing to provide you with those recordings, with 
whatever documentation and paperwork and court proceedings so you can get this story out there. Like everybody who's listening to this, go listen to Alphabet Boys season one. I'm almost done with season two as well, which is like a totally different type of story, which is in some ways even more wild. But uh, yeah, it's just, I'm glad you're covering it, I guess. Is, that's a long way of saying that. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say like, you know, I think a part of what a, a, a part of the value or the utility, I think, in telling stories like this as, as a podcast is that, you know, I've written a lot of magazine stories about these cases. And it's one thing to to describe them and how egregious they are. But it's quite another to, to actually hear the undercover recordings of the people involved. And I, and I think that's important for a couple of reasons. One, if you look at the the, the kind of pantheon of these like sting operations, you know, a, a common characteristic is that the defendants or the targets of the investigation tend to fall into two different categories. One is that these are people that, you know, for whatever reason, you know, are lonely in life. They are looking for kind of a brotherly or fatherly figure. And you see kind of a psychological manipulation that happens with the informant and the target where the people ultimately move forward in part because they want to impress the informant who himself is acting as a sociopath, right? Like knowing that, you know, this activity he's putting this person through is going to result in the person's incarceration for 10, 20 years. Right. And then the second part, which is the second bucket, which is what Zeb falls into is that it's also not uncommon for informants to portray themselves as like these badasses who are ultra violent. And that creates a situation where the people who made the mistake of getting involved in the plot or the loose conspiracy then feel like they can't back out because what's this guy going to do? Is he going to beat me up? You know, a, a classic example of this was a terrorism case in all, in all of all places in Key West, where a guy named Harlem Suarez, who had you know intellectual challenges, you know, knew about ISIS only from like CNN coverage. You know, ends up like meeting this informant on Facebook, and they you know, push him along in this plot to bomb a beach in Key West, and he's arrested when he takes possession of this fake bomb that an undercover FBI agent gives him. And his defense was, well, look, I was scared. Like these, these guys were ISIS. They knew where my parents lived. Like I felt like if I just didn't do anything and backed out, they were going to kill my parents. Right. And in hindsight, we know that that wouldn't happen because this is, these are FBI guys. But what does that guy know? I mean, it's, it's, it's not an unreasonable defense. And, and so the point is that the, the people that are often targeted in these things are, easily manipulated for a variety of reasons. And it's really kind of stark to be able to kind of hear it in the recordings. I'm, I'm struck by the, the new trend in going after the, the next class of the vulnerable person who they can roll up into these plots. Because I think you're right. There were people in the early 2000s, uh, there were Muslim Americans, or maybe not necessarily Americans. They were, they were Muslims, and they were rolling them up with threats of immigration issues. Um, and and then now there's a, there's a financial aspect to some of these people. A lot of times, especially when it comes to conspiracy, they say, hey, man, you're hard up for cash, like the Liberty City 7. Why don't you just be a lookout guy? or like the Newberg four, something similar to that. And now that we are existing in this very digital world and it's work smarter, not harder. And the FBI doesn't want to actually leave its keyboard or its cubicle. That's where they're going out online and they're finding people who are angry, might have some emotionally disturbed persons out there in, in online forums. And I'm blown away by the amount of people that are autistic or have some sort of mental problem and the fbi is aware of that will actually 
the person will tell them or they'll be able to do through their assessment, figure out that the person has a, a history of having some emotional problems. And instead of saying, hey, let's find a person to help if they need help or just leaving them alone to engage in whatever they want online, as is their right to do as an American citizen, it's cultivated. It's groomed. And now we're finding it's even done to juveniles and extended to a period for a number of years until they reach the age of majority when we can come in and hammer them with some material support to, to terrorism when they were just an angry 16-year-old who was talking about ISIS when ISIS hasn't been a thing for over a decade. Right. Yeah. I mean, we see this increasingly, um, you know, and this gets at like it's the the story that I wrote, you guys were nice enough to talk about a few episodes ago involving Jason Fong. I mean, what we're seeing, you know, more and more is the FBI targeting people online initially. And, and this raises a few questions. I mean, one question it raises, which we touched on earlier, is the unknown extent to which 702 is, is powering this, 702 being bulk surveillance. If you read criminal affidavits involving FBI investigations that were primarily online, typically what the FBI says is like, oh, well, our informant was in this Facebook group saw this post and that's what inspired us to or, or instigated this investigation and it, it but it, you know the question is to what extent is that process being automated right through bulk surveillance so they're kind of mining this kind of social media data you know automatically flagging you know posts based on certain keywords investigating that further and then you know as far as the court is concerned it's it's when the informant or the undercover employee then goes and finds this post and then moves forward in a, in a plot um but like, you know, we can look at like even, you know, there's there's some there's some evidence that parts of like the Whitmer assassination uh, or excuse me, Whitmer kidnapping plot were, you know, based in part on FBI informants and employees like finding people on the Internet. And so, you know, I, I think one of the interesting questions that we have now, which is what I tried to describe in the Jason Fong story, is that, you know, it's very difficult at times to know like what the difference is between like a real threat and someone who's just like shit posting online right like if you go on twitter or facebook and i don't know you go into like like go into like a trump forum or go into you know a, a biden forum you're gonna find like the political opponents in there just like you know shit posting right like trying to rile stuff up and you know sometimes that crosses the line it might cross the line in, into violence and so what we're seeing is that the the government is using people's communications online whether they are looking at people on the political extremes or they are looking for, you know, potential terrorists and they are trying to identify people that are, you know, espousing, you know, beliefs that warrant or actions that warrant some sort of investigation. And so the story I wrote about with Jason Fong was this was a guy who was kind of just, you know, disgruntled with his military career at the time he was in the Marines and the pandemic had happened and he was just online. And so he was autistic himself, a bit intellectually curious and at first kind of gets interested in the boogaloo movement because he's you know he's interested in guns and you know uh, gun safety and gun rights and and he realizes that these guys are kind of clowns and says okay i don't want into that and then around then he kind of wanders religiously to islam becomes a muslim and gets involved in this you know instagram page that is just like muslims like making fun of the the idea that all the stereotype that all muslims are terrorists but then it's also muslims who are training with guns, right? Legally, right? Like how to use guns. And they're talking about what guns they have and how to train with them. And Jason is a part of that. And it's really that is the the impetus for the, the government um, going in. I mean, what's interesting about Jason Fong's case in particular is that it wasn't just the FBI. It was also an NYPD 
employee who was essentially working as an extension of the FBI through the JTTF. And, you know, there that guy's in that guy's in New York. The FBI informant was in Alabama targeting a guy living in Orange County, California. Right. I mean, it was just farcical that like none of these people were anywhere near each other. But it becomes this, you know, ultimately this terrorism investigation that, you know, unfor that fortunately for Jason didn't hold up. He was never convicted on terrorism charges. But, you know, when they raided his home, he made the mistake of talking to the FBI and saying something that wasn't entirely true. And they ultimately got him on on a false statements charge. Yeah, they got him because he yeah, said he didn't know the people who were the actual yeah. undercovers. So he thought he was protecting his friends. Yeah, yeah they, they asked him, they asked him if, if anyone in, in the in the online group had espoused an interest in joining a, a terrorist group overseas. And he said no, which wasn't true because it was actually the FBI informant who had done that, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, it's so messed up because here he is, this this kid who's he's a little off and he's trying to protect who he thinks is his friend. And now he's getting jammed up on a 1001 charge, which is just, that's another one of these throwaways, you know, like I used to threaten that all the time. I had never once charged it because it's BS. It's not, it's, you, you should, if you're an FBI agent, you need to assume that people are lying to you. And then even with your threat of a 1001, they're still probably going to lie. And you as the investigatory agent, just do your job. If you did your job well, then you're going to find out the truth anyways, or closer to the truth of, of what you're trying to investigate. But here it's like, no, we got him. We got him. We got to get something. It's it's like the gun charge with Zeb Hall. We got to get something because, you know, we put all this time and effort into this case. And it's like, this, this isn't a real terrorist. He's just jumping around different groups, trying to find a place where he can fit in. And it's like, that. it's such a common, common story as well. The the Fong case, uh, Trevor, we were kind of joking as we were we were reading through it on the on the podcast, and we're saying, you know, they probably thought they had their new uh, the new flavor of the day, which was going to be the militia violent extremist because he's into guns, he's into boogaloo boys, he's got a connection to the military. This is the latest evolution of domestic terrorism. We've gone from homegrown violent extremism to domestic violent extremism to parenthetically militia violent extremism. And the next one's going to be the anti-government, anti-authority violent extremist. And then when he himself lost interest, uh, they kind of like threw their hands up. We're like, well, I guess we're going to have to go old school and just jam him up because he's a Muslim now. And yeah. I mean, it's in some ways it is interesting because like, Fong's, you know, backgrounds kind of fit a number of like, I think, you know, fit into a number of red flags that internally the FBI has, right? There, there, there has been this concern, um, you know, going back to like 2009 of, of, of military officers drifting toward extremism. And, you know, so this in the FBI's view potentially was that. And then there, there's also this, this view within the, the, the agency that I, I don't think has a lot of basis for support. But there's a belief that there's a possibility that you'll have people who are extremists from like opposite ends of the political spectrum at both times, right? So if, as an example, you know, this Fong was someone who was both a boogaloo boy and like an Islamist extremist, right? In the FBI's view at the time. And if you look back, there have been a couple of cases where the FBI has tried to kind of manufacture these weird overlaps and connections. I mean, one was a case, I believe it was in 2020, where the FBI targeted these two Boogaloo boys in Minnesota um, with, you know, undercovers who claimed to be members of Hamas. And they basically got the Boogaloo boys to give them 
uh, uh, oh, it's a that I forget the name of it. You guys probably know um, the the speed loader or the the way that you can modify a gun to be automatic. Um, auto seer, oh, uh, uh, auto seer, auto seer. Thank you. And <laughs> so, so they basically, so this guy was able to manufacture auto seers or said he could. That and, is, and, oh my gosh, that's yeah. that's like a thousand and, and so, one. It, they do it to all of them. Yeah, and so, so basically Hamas, like as if Hamas doesn't have access to weapons, right. like needed this guy from Minnesota to like manufacture an auto seer for them. And so then they arrest them and it's this case that the Justice Department's announced as like a boogaloo boy slash Hamas terrorism bust, right? And I remember I called up at the time one of the represent one of the the um the Hamas officials in Gaza and I was like, Do you know about this? And and like they like even Hamas like laughed at it. Like we, we have no interest in like working with Boogaloo boys, like, and, and so that, but it's kind of, shows an example of like the absurdity that these sting operations can, can have, right. That there's no basis in reality that Hamas is going to be working with the Boogaloo boys, but they kind of constructed this, this case. And so, so Jason, I think within the Bureau kind of fit within those things. And, and I think like, I think sometimes the Bureau doesn't really appreciate that. Like, you know, people, especially young people like Jason, I mean, they go from interest to interest. It doesn't mean that they're like, you know, card-carrying members of the Boogaloo Boys and like Islamist extremists at the same time, uh, but like that's kind of how it's how it's ultimately framed. Um, and I think you know, I mean, we are seeing, you know, in increasingly, you know, the use of these kinds of informants online um, to kind of encourage people to get involved in violence, to get involved in plots. I mean, if you look, you know, I remember, you know, going back to the late two thousands, early twenty tens. If you looked at arrest affidavits uh, for terrorism cases almost universally, it would say that the informant met this, you know, supposed Islamist extremist at the local mosque or at the local community center. And then starting around like 2015, there was this dramatic shift where almost all of the criminal affidavits were like, we found this guy online, we found this guy online. We found and so like, they've clearly kind of moved and, and the purpose seems to be that they, you know, are trying to kind of move people offline to get involved in plots. But increasingly, if you look at the, the number, the cases that they're making, often the cases these days are entirely online. It's just people communicating back and forth. And the only overt act outside of the internet would might be like someone like going to the airport because they think they're gonna board a flight to Turkey. And so then the case the government makes is, well, like he communicated with this person for months about going to Turkey to join ISIS without really kind of fully divulging in those first you know days of releasing information that you know it was the FBI informant or undercover who was encouraging that and was even offering money and other incentives to get the person to go. And I, you know, and, and you know, the basis for a lot of my work has been this question of like, you know, would this crime happen were it not for the government's instigating of the crime? And, and, and I would argue that in, in most cases of these sting operations, that's the case that, that the crime would not have occurred were it not for the government's involvement. Right. I, I think you're hundred percent right about that based on, cases i know based on my experience i think steve would agree as well like that we we call it the playbook this is the playbook they get a chs they get an oce they get an a uce and off to the races they go to try to figure it out and you know it's, it's to me it's extra nefarious because then like a Zarnaev slips through the cracks even though there was an assessment and then he you know they bombed the boston marathon or uh like the the pulse nightclub shooting that guy was on the list as well, you know, and I don't think I've ever mentioned this before, but uh, a dear friend of mine uh, who's a 101st Airborne historian, uh, his son was killed at the Pulse nightclub. And so like even that has like a, a personal tinge 
to me, uh, certainly for my friend, you know, as his son. But um, the FBI is spending so much time working on these cases that they basically have manufactured when there are legitimate people they should be investigating instead. And then they often miss those. It's it's very frustrating, especially as a former agent, you know. For sure, create... yeah. And if forgive me, I'll, if I can self promote for just a moment, um, I, actually, the, the the Pulse nightclub case is a really interesting one, and and I I've been working on it for the last year and looking at the 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 shooters and father was an informant and his role with the bureau, and so right. we have a uh, a documentary podcast coming out in July on Audible about that case, looking at you know, the FBI's failures and also the false narrative that the FBI helped push that Omar Mateen was gay when he really wasn't gay um, as a way of kind of obfuscating oh, the yeah. Bureau's failure right. in, yep. in the in the case. Uh, but I think you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, this is what I've been trying to document too, is, you know, when you look at sting operations, you, you know, you can't point to a case where, you know, I mean, what the FBI, I should back up, what, what the FBI says is like, well, look, we want to catch these people before they step over the line from sympathizer to operator, right? That's our job to find them before like a real bad guy can help facilitate their violent ideations. And, um, but if you look at the, the canon of cases, you know, there's, there's never been a case where the FBI operated a sting catches this guy who's got a, like a garage full of explosives and a really concrete plan to do some horrific stuff. Um, that's never been the case. Right. But you can look at, like cases like what you pointed out, like the Sarnayev case, like, you know, Tomlin Sarnayev was, uh, you know, identified by the Russian FSB as a potential threat. And then the Russian FSB notified the FBI and the FBI says they invested, they investigated him, did assessments. There are, there's some talk. I, I don't know how substantiated it was that um, they tried to recruit Tomlin Sarnayev as an informant at one point. But, you know, one of the cases I've written about in tandem with this, and I think it's emblematic of kind of a larger concern within the FBI is that like as they dropped the Sarnayev case, um, they investigated a guy, the same office in Boston invested, investigated a guy named Rezwan Ferdos. And Rezwan had mental issues. You know, he was so incapacitated by the end of the sting that he was actually wearing an adult diaper. Um, and so he had this like fantastical plan of flying a grenade laden drone into the Capitol in Washington, DC. You know, no ability to actually do that. And so then the FBI, buys him a drone, uh, pays for his trip to Washington to surveil the Capitol. And then, you know, at the final step, provided him with fake grenades that were supposed to be the explosives for his plot, right? Arrest him, high profile case of an Islamist extremist trying to attack the US Capitol. And, you know, he's convicted and thrown in, thrown in prison. But what, what went underreported, I think, was that that's what they pursued when they weren't pursuing the Sarnayev brothers prior to the Boston Marathon bombing. And, and I, I think, you know, there is this question that's that's a real challenge to get at, but I, I think it's worth asking, which is that like, to what degree do these FBI sting operations maybe make us less safe, right? The whole yeah. purpose of them ostensibly is to stop violent actors before they are able to strike. But if the FBI is so distracted with like easily manipulated people that it can get set up in sting operations, are they missing the real threats that are much harder police work to find, right? And I think you can kind of point to some anecdotes and raise you know, an argument that 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 could be happening in some cases. Without question, it is. And, and look, there's an opportunity cost when you are focusing your resources and your time on doing something which and I, uh, I'll throw this at you. 
you've been in this game for enough time. This probably is something that's familiar to you. The term integrated program management. Is that something that you're at all familiar with? No, I, I, I'm curious. What, yeah, tell me about it. Okay. Yeah. So IPM. This is one of my uh, okay. big ones that we stump on a lot because it's it, this is part of the playbook. The, uh, it's the quota system for the FBI. So it, it dictates the number of cases that they have to open every single year and have to have open on the books. So it is very valuable to have an open domestic terrorism case because those are so hard to come by, which is why they're loath to close them, close them out, which is why they will resort to these, uh, these ends to them, which are patently ridiculous, where they'll try to get somebody for lying to a federal agent or, or make some sort of ridiculous entrapment gun purchase, because when they eventually have to close it out, they have to justify all the time and resources because they've kept this case open now for years and years on end. But it basically perversely incentivizes the FBI because they are motivated to bring the numbers up. And they're going to work smarter and not harder. So Garrett can say in, in his experience, he had a, you know, a uh, some sort of assessment of a, a potential domestic terrorist organization with four people. He was told to open four separate cases with one subject, as right. opposed to opening one case with four. Yeah, Those are the games they play. And, the, and because they're trying to hit the numbers, they're not looking at the Sarnayev brother because, you know, we'll just roll the dice on that. We live in a relatively safe country. More than more likely than not, he's not a legitimate threat. So let's just focus in on the small time guy who we can groom with an online undercover employee to buying a, a fake hand grenade to fly on a drone over the Capitol. Yeah, that's, I didn't know. I didn't know that they called it um, that. I mean, I was aware of the, the the quota system. I mean, I think what's interesting in relation to that as well, and um, is like how internally, and, th and this gets at like I know there's been a lot of talk in the last couple of years about. Um, questions about the FBI's inflation of domestic terrorism investigations in, in general. And, and the first time I, I, I looked at this issue was back in like 2017, I think, and a colleague and I had gotten access to the internal Justice Department database that prosecutors use to flag, um, like organize their cases. And so it's separate from the FBI, but it's like when the FBI refers a case to the Justice Department, prosecutors then need, needed to flag it. And what we found was that there was an extraordinarily high number of domestic terrorism cases um, compared to like what you would think, right? And so we had access to that data and we started looking at what internally within the Justice Department, the FBI was flagging as, as uh, domestic terrorism cases. And then we went to those cases to figure out what the, what the facts were, you know, and a couple of things as just a couple of examples, like we found one case where someone put like, do you remember in high school when you make like the chemical bomb with a Coke bottle and put it in someone's mailbox, some, <laughs> some jackass did that. And that became a, uh, that became a domestic terrorism case within the data. Right. There was another case where, you know, this jilted lover threw a Molotov cocktail into his, you know, romantic rivals, um, mobile home. And that became a domestic terrorism case. And so there, there does seem to be this like, you know, institutional problem of like, when it's good for the FBI, I mean, it's obviously good for your, if you're the Justice Department of the FBI to have, you know, I've got, you know, I've got so many domestic terrorism cases under my belt, so many international terrorism cases under my belt. And so there's a, a direct incentive, obviously, within the Bureau to inflate those numbers. Um, but I think on a, on a larger level, I think part of it is this kind of like, this, this is all born out of the decision post 9-11. Um, you know, there was initially this idea of splitting the FBI in two, right? Like an MI5, MI6 style setup. And Mueller pushed against that saying like, look, I think 
we can be even more effective if we have this bifurcated mission of both counterintelligence, counterterrorism, and criminal investigations. But I think what they didn't fully play out, and I think this contributes to the larger kind of institutional problems, is that you know counterintelligence and counterterrorism are not something that whose success can be measured in the same way that criminal investigations can, right? But at the same time, that's how the FBI measures it. So it's like, so they're using the counterintelligence and counterterrorism program, but like measuring its success based on the metrics of law enforcement or traditional law enforcement. So arrests made, successful prosecutions. And I think if you're asking someone who truly, you know, has spent a career in counterintelligence and counterterrorism, like, you know, the successes of those programs aren't always so black and white right? It's not always that you arrested someone. It's maybe that you created an environment that made, you know, the person committing that uh, act, it made it very difficult for them in a way that you can't disclose to the public. Right. And, you know, and so that's, I think that's part of kind of the, the kind of the genesis problem that we now face with how the FBI kind of measures these cases. Yeah, that that's certainly, I think that that problem is even pervasive throughout all law enforcement. Like uh, Steve and I were both cops before we were in the FBI. And I think of even certain instances there where they have these metrics and they try to pigeonhole you to do things to meet them, but it's not always the best outcome or the most reasonable outcome. Like I always approached my time in law enforcement as if I can avoid putting handcuffs on you and come to a better outcome, then I will. And then at least as a cop and then as an FBI agent, it's like, well, where's that same type of intervention, especially on the JTTF side, like you're talking about here, like okay, go, go and arrest drug dealers and gangbangers or murderers, whatever else. But you're right about the CI and the CT programs. That isn't the best way of judging those metrics, but they force it to be that way. And then you get these manufactured terror plots like we've been talking about. Like, because there's they don't have a metric for saying, well, how many did we actually prevent? Truly, truly prevent. Because you typically arrest somebody after the crime. So we make a crime. And we get a, an online undercover, uh, an actual undercover, and or a CHS involved. And then we arrest them when they, quote, unquote, commit the crime. And it's like, there's got to be a better way, especially in the alleged land of the free, as I keep saying. like It's so pervasive. I mean, when I was moved from criminal work to counterterrorism work, I was told that, well, this will be great because you're going to have a chance to make a lot of gun arrests, which... Yeah, I mean, that's them flat out telling you up front that we know that these plots are not going to go anywhere. So you're just going to have to gin up a criminal reason, a rationale for having devoted so much time and resources to it when it ultimately comes time for us to say, all right, we can't keep this case on the books anymore. So why don't, you know, as opposed to we've looked at this guy, maybe for one reason or another, uh, there there was a legitimate reason for us to to monitor him in one, in one way. Uh, and then after some time has elapsed, he is a free American. We should leave him alone. We should close it out. But instead of doing that, the resistance is, well, we've got so much tied into this. We've got so much good money going after bad that we have to do something. So as a last a ditch effort, as a Hail Mary, we'll throw up, we'll try to introduce an undercover and bump him. And But for the involvement of the government in that, if it does even proceed on beyond that, that's a person who could have gone back to engaging in regular First Amendment protected activity. Yeah, you know, I've, I've quizzed a number of FBI agents on this issue and, and, and pointed to specific cases where someone was, was targeted in a sting. And it's someone, you know, often young, you know, with very few resources, um, impressionable. It, it's just not someone that, 
is likely to have committed a crime on their own. And, I, and I've said to them, like, well, look, I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I can't say with certainty, but I'm pretty sure that if you'd shown up at that guy's door and been like, hi, you know, I'm, you know, I'm Agent Smith from the FBI. We know that you're communicating about this kind of like extremism online. Maybe you should knock it off, right? A lot of times th those kinds of targets would be like scared straight. Be like, oh man, like I went too far. And so if that person was to commit terrorism, you know, that likely prevented it in itself, right? And uh, and when I've asked agents about this, the, the common response I get is something along the lines of like, well, we're the FBI, we're not a social services organization, right? And and so it's like, you know, basically like, we're just here to arrest people. We're just and, here to take uh, away your freedom. Yeah. And so it's, to me, it's like, it, it does show just kind of the cynicism at play, but also, you know, I mean, if you're looking at this holistically, like what good is it? We're gonna like send this person to prison. We're gonna have to pay for him to be in prison for 10 years. You know, he's gonna lose the, you know, probably among the better parts of his young life, you know, and like, what, what good does this do? You know, and I, I think it's it's something that ultimately is really difficult to measure. But I mean, I, I, I think the, the way we're doing it now certainly, you know, isn't isn't the way we should be doing it. I, I'm, I mean, I've never been a big advocate, even when I was a police officer with we used to call it hug a thug. You know, we'll be like, we, how much midnight basketball do we really need to stop inner city crime? I mean, there, there's a there's a line, though, but there's also a line of public service. I mean, I could tell you from a personal standpoint. We, we had an investigation that was there was a, a, a woman who that uh, there was a suspicion that she was going to engage in a school shooting and come to find out she was emotionally disturbed. She was online. She was into true crime. And then because of her proclivities, she became a very obsessive with true crime and true crime evolved into serial killing and then serial killing involved in the mass shooting and mass shooting involved. And, and it just just goes down a rabbit hole. And she wasn't engaging in anything she was she had no ability to actually carry out an attack she was just on in an online world and uh i took a step back afterwards and said hey wh why don't i just contact her offline and you know just go visit her once a month for a couple months and just make sure that maybe maybe the medicine gets measured right and she's she's back to being a productive member of, of society and maybe just in the back of her mind she remembers that at some point somebody from the government reached out and was like hey how you doing and and what what is the downside to that and i was told trevor that i was not allowed to do that because so you so, so you just so you know she went to an online forum and in that online forum another person connected with a person in a different online forum and in that second online forum, they connected with a third person. And in that third person connected with a fourth forum. And in that fourth forum, a picture of ISIS was posted. Ergo, we needed to hop back and open an ISIS investigation on this woman. That's incredible. I mean, I, I can see how, exactly how that would happen though, right? Yep. Like that's, that's, how, that's how it goes. It gets opened I mean, I, and then we bump her and we try to get her to do a terrorism. That's how yeah, that I also think it's, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about, which I think is worth noting, because I, I think at least I think it's quite interesting, is that is that as you two, I'm sure know, like, you know, the 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 rules that are in place for undercover investigations, the, the dialogue, as it's known, you know, prevent agents from doing certain things that, you know, the attorney general has decided shouldn't be done. And, and one of those is that agents, as far as I know, unless this has changed since the most recent dialogue has been revealed, um, agents aren't allowed to um, take on false identities online, like create like a cover um, identity. And so what we're seeing increasingly are the use of informants doing that because the, the, the loophole is that the informants can do it. Um, but the challenge I think is that it creates this real, you know, 
problematic incentive because you know informants know that they can only make money if they bring results right. and so they're they're going to have um, an incentive to go online and encourage people like the one you described to move to different groups that may then expose them to like pictures of ISIS that would then facilitate like deeper and deeper investigations. And, you know, the incentive for the informant might not be that they want to keep America safe. They want to get dangerous people identified by the government. It might just be that they want to make money. And that's the, that's the real incentive. And I think that's another area where I think the FBI really has struggled to present any kind of level of accountability is like, how do you figure out, you know, how much of what your informant is doing is doing, you know, properly and should be doing and would be something an under, undercover agent would do or in how much of it is he just kind of like scamming the FBI for, you know, uh, being able to make money as an informant. Yep. And you you touched on this in season one of Alphabet Boys about how, and, and Steve and I know, like when you open up a CHS, you, one of the areas you got to fill in is their motivation. And I, I remember listening to, to your podcast and thinking, oh, he's so right about this about how agents will kind of kind of couch the words a little bit to be like, oh, no, they're actually a patriot. And, you know, <laughs> they really they really want to do what's right on behalf of America. And it's like, no, they just want to get paid. Or th there's uh, sometimes, and I think this is the case with the CHS and season one of Alphabet Boys, he's got, there's a thrill there. He likes, he likes it. He likes the intrigue and feeling like he's an undercover special agent, secret agent, and... You know, so his his handler opens him up as as oh he's just a patriotic American when really he's he's trying to do and get involved with as much as he can because he knows the the more he can be involved in the more he can push a case the more he's going to get paid. It's yeah, simple. and and we documented that there was a long history that the FBI knew about where he had worked as an informant for personal gain, so he knew the system. And so the idea that the that he just show up at the FBI's office in Denver reporting, you know what he termed violent kind of speech at, at racial justice demonstrations. Like the, the FBI said, he's just basically a concerned citizen, a volunteer Captain America. Yeah. Like, you know, that's why he's doing this, right? Which is absurd. I mean, I, you know, there are people, we should say that. I mean, there, there are people who obviously come to the FBI out of sincerity, right? Like they, there's a crime happening, they believe in America, and they they like want, they feel like their patriotic duty is to report this to the FBI. But they're like a very small minority compared to the informants who are kind of in it for some sort of personal gain. And obviously the FBI knows this, but you know, as you guys know, you know, they don't want to be so explicit in court records or in, in official right. records for fear that it gets to the court. And then that really compromises their case. Mm -hmm. I, I do have one, one question just uh, kind of off the board um, as, as we're getting ready to, to kind of close it down here. Um, have you done any work or research on how much the department of Homeland security might be using similar tactics because of their they obviously have a counterterrorism mission as well uh, and also a pool of funds that's probably 10x what the the, the fbis are or are you mostly focusing in on on the fbi so i mostly write about the fbi i mean i'm, I'm interested in all federal law enforcement agencies uh, but the fbi tends to be the central focus i mean in part because it, it tends to be the most influential um but i you know dhs is a really interesting agency because it's enormous it doesn't get the level of scrutiny it probably should. I'm not specifically aware of cases that are exactly like this. You know, I do know that DHS, um, especially what HSI, Homeland Security Investigations, um, they've been in, they've been involved in a couple of cases I've looked at where the FBI was taking the lead, but then HSI like played a role. 
Um, and, and they're those, an agency in search of a mission. They really right, don't have one. <laughs> right. And, and so, I mean, I, so, but I don't know of them kind of, you know, the specific things that they have been doing. I mean, obviously like, you know, what we are seeing is like DEA, you know, INS, I mean, there, there is, there's, there's increasing reporting on kind of their use of 702 and, and some of the underhanded tactics that they use. But I even, I don't know as much about that on the, the DHS side. Um, and I suspect it's there. It's, I, and unfortunately, I think DHS tends to be one of these agencies that's gargantuan, but somehow evades a lot of the reporting that's done on, as it does on other agencies. Interesting stuff. One thing um, I wanted to bring up was uh, in episode eight of season one of Alphabet Boys, I heard a familiar a familiar voice, uh, Special Agent Brandon Kimball. And so I was I was like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. So I used to work with him in Wichita, but uh, maybe maybe we could talk about him a little more offline. And uh, yeah, interesting. I uh, yeah, maybe we'll talk a little more offline about about that. But I just wanted to bring that up because, you know, I'm. I, I usually listen to podcasts when I'm driving and I'm, that episode really stood out because it's like, oh, I, I know this dude and just hearing him and it, it just it was funny to me. It was funny to hear him and in that position. And it's like, honestly, I'm glad I'm glad that that you did that episode and, and played it. And it, it shows kind of the typical uh, character of, of a lot of FBI agents out there where they have this overwhelming hubris and, you know, think think that they're the government and they know best and they're going to force you to, to comply. And yeah, I don't know. I, I, I love it. I love alphabet boys. Thanks for bringing it to the world. And you know, as, as if you plan on doing more seasons, I'm sure we'll continue to talk about it and get the word out there. Thanks. Yeah. And, and, and quickly, I would just note like what, what was interesting about episode eight was it, it touches on one of the themes we talked about earlier, which is that, you know, the FBI was investigating these, these left-wing activists in Colorado Springs at the same time, they were they had become aware of the future Club Q shooter. You know, he'd been reported as potentially violent, and they basically were like, "We're going to ignore that guy and focus on these these activists." And so later, this person, you know, kills several people at a at a at a bar, and you know, the FBI had an opportunity, arguably, to stop it were it not so distracted by this other case. And I, I think that uh, I think. Your your update was also struck me because you you mentioned with Mickey that you know he had emerged in Daytona Beach, which is yeah. kind of where I am now, and uh, I couldn't help but think right away we have a bike week coming up, and the outlaw motorcycle gang, uh, the the pressure the FBI has to investigate those groups, which again are just a bunch of guys riding around in leather, just not not necessarily engaging in anything illegal when they're in Daytona, they're just having fun. But uh, I know that we were out there and about and uh, doing surveillance on them, getting their license plates because reasons, I guess, uh, to keep <laughs> open outlaw motorcycle gang investigations going. And I bet uh, Mickey was probably looking to, to get himself paid on a new topic. Go to, he would, to, go to he would fit into that world. He'd fit into that world better. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's funny. I've had I've had a number of people say to me, like, after Alphabet Boy is like, oh, well, there's no way Mickey's an informant anymore. I mean, he's, he's all over the internet <laughs> now, right? And I was like, I wouldn't be so certain because like, you know, there was this informant named Shahed Hussein who was the central focus of my book. And when I was doing publicity for it, like, you know, we had his picture on national TV and we later found out he he just continued working for the FBI. It was like, no big deal. Just change your name. No one's going to know yeah. who you are. And, and, you know, obviously that gets increasingly more difficult as, you know, things like Google image search becomes more powerful and you could throw someone's photograph in there. But I mean, I am always struck by how willing the FBI is to use informants who've 
previously been exposed, which is also kind of ironic in a sense, because the FBI, you know, when journalists like me are writing stories about informants, they're always like, no, 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 you can't, please don't reveal them. It's a matter of life and death and national security. And then we reveal them and they just continue working, right? Yeah. So it yes, just shows yeah. the absurdity of the situation. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. There's no guarantee of anonymity when you're an informant for the government. Uh, they might have to present you at court. They should tell you that right off the bat. But um, I, hey, Trevor, thank you so much for joining us today. And yeah, this was this sure. is a great, great chat, man. We were really excited to have you um, and, and get into the, this information. I do want to give you one last opportunity to make sure you plug that new upcoming Audible series that you have. Um, and, and then we can sign it off for the day. Go ahead. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. The, the series on the Pulse nightclub shooting comes out on audible in July. Um, and then I'll post updates on my Twitter and I also have a Substack at Trevor Aronson as well, or X. Excuse me. Fantastic, man. And thanks for joining us today on the American radicals podcast. And we'll have definitely have to have you back, uh, as, uh, as, th as that podcast comes out. And I know I'll, I'll be one of the first ones downloading it. That sounds great. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Thank thanks, you. Trevor. And uh, one last thing uh, for me, this whole conversation had me thinking of Habakkuk chapter one, starting in verse three. It says, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. So thank you, Trevor, for coming on and trying to shine a light on some of this perversion that we see with what we assumed was justice coming from the justice department and this a little bit over an hour went so fast so we'll have to have you back on soon maybe in july after the audible uh comes to fruition that'd be great yeah thank you all right well i think that's gonna do it today for the american radicals podcast guys we will see you on thursday on rumble rumble.com slash amradpod we are going to be there at noontime if you're here with us in the chat, thanks for joining us for today and uh, make sure you do give us a like and a follow and uh, we will see you again on Thursday. You've been listening to the voice of the suspendables on the American radicals podcast. Follow us on rumble.com slash am rad pod. Everybody out in the world.